Hebrews chapter 3. We will get the opportunity to look at the whole chapter this morning. Uh, we got chapter 1 in a week, chapter 2 in a week, and we'll get chapter 3 in a week. I don't know how long we'll be able to keep up that pace, though. At some point, we're going to not make it through an entire chapter, but this morning we are going to do our best. If you were with us when we finished the book of Second Peter, you remember that Peter encouraged the readers to get to know Christ, to get to know Christ more. And certainly, I think, as we've covered the first two chapters of Hebrews, we have done that. We have learned some things about Christ that are just fascinating, they're amazing, they're, they're actually mind-blowing. In chapter 1 of Hebrews, uh, the author told us Jesus is better than the prophets, than the prophets of old. For the prophets, they spoke on behalf of God, where Jesus spoke as God. He also told us that Jesus is better than the angels. Oh, the angels are in heaven, they're gathered around the throne of God to worship, but Jesus, he's seated on the throne of God. He's the object of their worship. He holds a higher position than them. And then in chapter 2 last week, the author warned us, his readers, he warned us about drifting, how easy it would be for us to drift away. And he urged the readers to take heed to the things which they had heard from the apostles. And to us, that translated into take heed to the word of God. Not just listen to it, but live it out. Don't just be a, a, a hearer of the word, but to be a doer of the word also. And he gave some specific examples. He said that if the law was spoken through the angels... We know that the angels played some part in the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. If that law was given and man was held accountable as a result of that and judgment followed, then should we not expect the same when we, if we neglect such a great salvation that we've received in Jesus Christ? In other words, the, the law was given to them. They were held accountable. We are given Jesus Christ. We are given him. We must not neglect that salvation. The author went on to answer the question as to why did Jesus have to die? If he's so great, if he's higher than the angels, he's higher than the prophets, if he's God, why did he have to suffer and die? And he went on to tell us that he had to die. He had to be made a little lower than the angels so that he could conquer death for all of mankind. He could conquer death for you and for I, and, and for I so that everything would be subject to him. And I know that we don't see that yet, but the author encouraged us, hey, it's coming. One day it will be coming, it's taking place. But there's something else important since Jesus had conquered death, since he literally holds all things together, since he created all things, I like this part. We were told in the second chapter of Hebrews, Jesus has become the captain of our salvation. He's the pioneer of our salvation. In verse 10, it tells us he's in the process of ushering us into glory. Think about that. You're in the process, so you're on your way to glory. What a blessing that is. We're told he's sanctifying us, He's setting us apart for the glory of God. He's testifying to God on your behalf. I wonder what he's saying about you. He's up there going, I can't believe they did it again. No, he's testifying on, he, he's saying they're mine. They're forgiven. They're mine. They're, they're, they're one of mine. They believe on me. And although Jesus does not give aid to the angels, we learn that he does give aid to us. And he's able to do that because he was tempted like us. He suffered like we do. As a result, he's able to help those who are tempted. Today, as we come to chapter 3, that was all the last two weeks. Today, as we come to chapter 3, we will be described, us, meaning believers, we're going to be described as holy brethren. We're going to be described as partakers of the heavenly calling. And we're going to see Jesus described as the apostle, the high priest of our confession. He's going to be called faithful, and we're going to see that he is in a position greater than Moses, higher than the prophets, higher than the angels, higher than Moses. We're going to see that point made here today. But 
we're also going to see a warning come our way. And I don't know about you, but every time I know there's a warning coming in the Scripture, it always makes me a little nervous. Like, I don't know, do I want to hear that part? Yes, we do want to hear that part. We're going to be warned against hardening our hearts. Hardening your heart. Our hearts can be hardened through unbelief, through sin, and through disobedience. And he'll explain that to us as we go on. Our lives will be compared and contrasted to the same group of people, the same Israelites who left Egypt, spent a couple of years wandering in the desert, then they came to the edge of the promised land. As they looked into the promised land, they looked over the land of Canaan, they sent some spies in. They sent ten. Eight came back with a bad report too. Joshua and Caleb came back with a good report. And they said, God said, go take the land. And you know what they said? No, we're scared. There's giants over there. We're not going. We're, we're not, it's not happening. I don't think we can win. So for the next 38 years, they wandered in the desert until their bodies dropped dead in the desert. And after that, the next generation went in to the promised land. We can learn something from them. As they stood on the border out of fear and disobedience, they never, as a result of that, they never entered into the rest the Lord has for them. That should scare you to death. You mean the Lord might have more for me? I'm sure that he does. Let's pick up with that in mind in chapter 3, verse 1. I'll read the first six verses, then we'll come back and start to talk about them. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Jesus, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was faithful in all his house, for this one, that's Jesus, has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone. But he who built all things is God. And Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterward. But Christ as a son over his own house whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. We know that when we see that word therefore, it's referring to what I just told you. It's referring to it's the things in, in light of what I just told you, therefore, and then he proceeds to call us, call believers, call Christians that would read this letter, holy brethren. Holy brethren and partakers of the calling. I know it's hard to believe that Jesus would call you holy, isn't it? Sometimes we look at ourselves and go, well, I don't know that I would call me holy. But do you know that if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, as you sit here this morning, you're holy. You're a holy brother. And you might think, well, I don't really feel very holy. Listen, you're not holy because how you feel. You're holy for what he's done for you. You're holy for, because you're in Christ, because you're a believer in him. Not because of what you did last week or last month or last year or even with your lifetime. You become holy when you believe in Jesus Christ. That's when you become righteous because his blood covers your unholiness and that makes you holy. But he also calls us, he calls them partakers of the heavenly calling. Partakers, to partake in something. We're partakers of this heavenly calling. Since you are being brought to glory by the captain of your salvation, you are a partaker in his house that he is building. Like Moses was a servant in the house of God, we too are servants in the house of God. We are partaking of the project that he is, that he's doing. Well, I thought I was the project. Well, you are, but there's a bigger project going on around you. We're partaking of that. We get it. We're getting the opportunity to walk with him in that. 
I hope the fact that he calls you holy, that he tells you that you're a partaker of a heavenly calling, I hope that encourages you. I hope it reminds you that no matter what you're going through, no matter what kind of day or week or month you had, the creator of the universe says, you're holy, you're mine, you're set apart for my purpose. I have a plan for you. And you're a partaker of the heavenly calling. But after that, the author, he tells us to do something. He says, consider. Consider what? The apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. I want you to consider Christ Jesus. And let me draw your attention to the word consider. It's more than a simple glance. It's more than a single thought. It's more than just something runs across my mind for a moment. In the ancient Greek, it means to consider attentively, to fix your eyes or your mind on something. I'm attaching myself to something when I consider something. It's not just a fleeting thought that runs through my head in one ear, out the other. No, it hangs there. I'm considering it. I'm, I'm thinking about it over and over again. I really focus on something. We attach our eyes and our mind to it. Well, what are we supposed to consider? He told you, Christ Jesus. I want you to consider Christ Jesus. He also told us that he's the apostle, which means the sent messenger. Well, I thought there was 12 apostles. No, they were apostles of Christ. Christ is the apostle. He's the sent one. He is the capital A apostle there. He is the apostle. He's the sent one from God. But Jesus is also, it said, the high priest of our confession, of our confession. In the Old Testament, the high priest had a unique job. He represented God to the people, but he also represented the people before God. Once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go through the holy place. He would go into the Holy of Holies where he would take the blood of a spotless lamb and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat to atone for the sins of the people of Israel. I love the fact that God met them on the mercy seat. On the top of the Ark of the Covenant sat the mercy seat. That's where God would meet the high priest as he covered the blood. As he covered it with blood, he would meet there and forgive the sins of the people. Jesus is our high priest. He's the one that represents us before God, but he's also the one that represents God to us. There is no other person that should occupy that. Well, Rob, I thought you're the pastor. I'm kind of the under shepherd. He's the shepherd. He's the high priest. He's the one that atoned for your sins, not me, not any other pastor. He's the one that fulfilled that requirement. He's the spotless lamb. His blood was shed for all men, and there is no need for any more for animal sacrifices. He's the high priest of our confession. I like that too. You say, why well, don't say he's the high priest of our salvation? Well, I kind of like confession because Christianity is based on a confession, isn't it? It's a confession with your mouth. I believe on Jesus Christ. But isn't it also a confession with your life? You demonstrate that belief on Jesus Christ by the way that you live your life. That you, you, sometimes it's been said, you speak louder with what you do than with what you say. You can see what somebody believes by the way that they live their life much clearer than what comes out of their mouth. Because a lot of times what comes out of our mouth, those are the things we want to do, but what comes out of our life, these are the things that we're actually doing. They're the things that we're actually living. Literally, Jesus is the ambassador and the mediator of our confession. Christianity is a confession made with your mouth, but also with your life. Please don't forget, who was this letter written to? This letter, if you forgot, was written to Jewish believers. They had become Christians. They had become followers of Christ, but they were kind of on the fence. They thought, you know, there's some persecution happening. You know, my family, it doesn't want anything to do with me anymore. So they were seriously considering going back to Judaism. 
as a result of what was taking place. They were considering going back to the law, back to their old way of life, back to the sacrifices. And the author wants to tell them, Jesus is so much better. You don't need a high priest. He is the high priest. You don't need a prophet. He is the prophet. He is the one. Listen, if you're considering anything other than Christ, can I just tell you that Jesus is better? Whatever might struggle for your time, whatever might struggle for your faith, whatever might struggle, there's nothing higher than the Lord Jesus Christ. There's nothing better. His love is deeper. His faithfulness is flawless. I don't think you'll always understand it. In fact, I know you won't. I think you might be left with questions, but that's where your faith gets to be put on display. That even in those times where you look and go, Lord, I don't know if you know what you're doing. I'm going to trust that you do. And I'm going to trust that you know far better than I do. In their case, the readers of this letter, they were headed back to the law, headed back to Moses. Look what's written there in verse 2. Well, let me start in verse 1 for context. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was faithful in all his house. In verse 2, Jesus begins to be contrasted with Moses. Jesus was faithful to him who appointed him. That's God. Who, Moses was faithful in all his house. Moses showed a, an amazing faithfulness in his ministry. If you know anything about the life of Moses, he was a faithful man. But here's what the difference. Jesus showed a perfectly flawless faithfulness. He never wavered. There was never, there was never, never did he strike the rock when he was supposed to speak it. Never did he commit murder when he was on the run from his family. He, his faithfulness was perfect and flawless. And if we consider that perfect, flawless faithfulness, that's hard to say, perfect, flawless faithfulness of Christ in the past, why would we ever doubt his faithfulness in the future? His past performance is a prediction of future reliability. If he was faithful then, he'll be faithful now. So when he says, I'm coming back, why won't we believe him? We should believe him. There's no reason not to believe him. He's always been faithful. When he says, he has begun a good work in you, will complete it in the day of Christ Jesus our Lord, why would you doubt that he's not going to complete the good work in you? When he says, all things work together for good to those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose... Yet you look at your life and you go, well, I don't see it happening that way. If he was faithful then, why wouldn't he be faithful now? He will be. You just might not understand it. Let's keep going there. Verse 3. For this one, that's Christ, has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone. But he who built all things is God. And Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterwards. But Christ, and I'm going to add something here to help you understand, but Christ was faithful as a son over his own house, whose house we are if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of hope firm to the end. As Moses and Jesus are compared there, you can easily see that Moses is a servant and Christ is a son. Jesus holds a higher position than Moses. He has more glory and more honor because he's the one who designed the house. He's the one who built the house. Did you notice how many times the word house was used? When you think of house, what do you think of? You think of a house. You're going home from here and you're going to live in a house. That's not what that word means. 
You see, in, in America, in our culture, we hear house, you think, you know, four walls, a roof, and, you know, a bathroom, a master bedroom, a couple of kids' rooms, and things like that. That's a house. That's not what it's talking about here. The word house refers to a group of people, the house of Israel, the house of David, the house of this king or the house of that king. It's a group of people, all the people in the family. It's the group that he's gathering together. The Lord is building a house, a family, and we're part of it. Isn't that amazing? Moses had a house. There was people underneath of him. They came underneath Moses into the desert. But Christ says, I'm building a house. Moses, he was a servant in God's house. We're servants in God's house. Christ, he's the one that built the house. But looking at a regular house, who gets more glory? The guy that, the laborer that builds the house or the guy that designed the house? If you go up a little few hours up into Pennsylvania, you see a place called Falling Waters. Who, who, who gets more credit, the laborers or Frank Lloyd Wright for designing it? Well, it's a Frank Lloyd Wright house. Why? He's the designer. Do you think he got out there and actually built it with his own hands? He may have helped, but he had needed laborers to do that with him. We, when you look at a painting, do you praise the painting or do you praise the artist that painted it? You praise the artist. He gets more glory. He gets more credit. That's what they're saying Christ is. Christ is the designer. He's the builder. He holds much. He's not just a servant fulfilling a role that was given to him. He is the one that created the role. That's why his position is more glorious. Notice the last statement there in verse 6. But Christ as a son over his own house, it's his house. And look at this part, whose house we are. We are. If we're Christians, we're part of his house. If we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. Notice it says whose house we are. If we are in Christ, we are part of his house. We are servants in his house. But it also says something there interesting. It says, if we hold fast, hold fast. If we hold fast, what does that mean? What does that word hold fast mean? It's real simple. The word hold fast, it's a nautical term. It means to hold one's course towards something. In other words, you, you set your course, you set your ship on a direction, you're going to follow it at 212 degrees and you hold that course till the end. That's what it means. I'm going to hold fast. Remember, the people that he's writing to, they were on the fence. They're saying, well, I think we're going to go back to Judaism. I, this is kind of hard here. He says, no, hold fast. Hold fast. What are you holding fast to? The confidence and the rejoicing of the hope. How long? All the way to the end. The writer to the Hebrews is encouraging those who felt like turning back. Those who would say, well... I tried that Jesus thing. Now I'm going back to my old life. He's exhorting them to hold fast, hold the course that you established, and do not turn back to your old life or your old ways. Maybe, maybe you need to be reminded of that this morning. Maybe there's, you're here and you're thinking, well, I'm thinking I don't, I'm only here because someone made me come this morning. Hold fast to the course that you established. Don't give up. Because you know what's interesting to me? True commitment to Jesus. Do you know that it's demonstrated over the long term? not just an initial burst. Oh, we've seen lots of a little initial burst in Christians. Oh, they get a burst. I'm, I'm a Christian. My life's changed. I'm doing great. Where are they in five years? 10 years? 20 years? 30 years? 40 years? Where are they when they're getting ready to take their last breath? Have they held fast the course in Christ? Now, it's not talking about losing your salvation or anything like that. It's encouraging you to say, I'm going to hold fast. I've set myself on a course to follow Christ, and I will not be deterred from it. I will continue in that direction no matter what circumstances come my way. As we look at verse 7, remember, these are people 
who are thinking about turning away. They're turning back. Perhaps they've drifted, and now they're wondering, which direction do I go? Verse 7, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. In the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me and tried me, and saw my works forty years. Therefore I was angry with that generation and said, They always go astray in their hearts, and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Verse seven tells us something fascinating. You know what it says? It says the Holy Spirit is speaking. God is speaking. The Holy Spirit is speaking and ministering. And he's speaking through the word of God. Notice the words the, the Holy Spirit's using there. It's the Old Testament. It's a psalm. The author's reminding his readers of another group of people. Their forefathers. That group that came out of Egypt. That group that wandered in the desert. They hardened their hearts against God as they wandered in the desert for 38, oh, well, a total of 40 years. Can you imagine I look back and go, how did you see the Red Sea parted? How did you walk across the Red Sea on dry land and then watch it collapse on the Egyptian armies and then doubt God just a moments later? How, how, did, how did your faith not just go from here to here? Well, it did in that moment. But then you know what happened? The next trial came along and it was back down here again. They forgot. If those people in the wilderness were responsible to follow their high priest, Moses, are we not responsible to follow our high priest, Jesus Christ? Of course we are. The point is clear. As the Holy Spirit speaks, we as Christians must not harden our hearts. If you do, just like they missed out on the promised land, it might cost you. You might miss out on a blessing that God has for you. Their generation that he's referring to, the promised land, they missed out on crossing over the, 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 the Jordan River. They missed out on uh, having the land distributed to them. They missed out on overcoming the Canaanites. They missed out on this amazing work of God. Why? Because they were miserable, unbelieving, cranky people who wouldn't listen to what God wanted them to do. They thought their way was better. They did not enter into his rest. Now, I need to pause just for a moment, ask a couple of rhetorical questions. How do we hear the Holy Spirit speak? I think the first way that we hear him is just the way you saw him right here in the Psalms, in the scriptures. We're going to hear the Holy Spirit speak first and foremost. The voice of God will come through the word of God. Well, I need to hear from the Lord. Are you reading your Bible? Well, not really. Well, then where do you expect to hear from him? Where, where, where do you think he's going to meet you at? You think he's going to meet you in a bar somewhere? You think he's going to meet you in the grocery store? You think he's going to meet you at home with the TV on? I was watching that Christian preacher. No, turn him off. Go to the Bible if you want to hear from the Lord. You and yourself, you, you yourself and I, not me, you. Private, quiet time. Me, myself, and I need to sit before the Lord and just say, Lord, I need to hear from you. And don't go with any preconceived ideas on what you want to hear. Let him be the one that's going to lead it. Let him be the one that guides it. When you read your Bible, ask yourself these questions. What does it say? What does it mean? That way you're getting it in context. And then don't forget the third question. What does it mean to me? What are you trying to say to me here? Or what are you showing me here? What, is, what does this story mean to me? How does my life relate to this? If you'll do that tomorrow morning in your devotion time, 
there's a good chance you will hear the Spirit of God speak directly to you through the Word of God. Not saying it will happen every time, but there's a good chance it will happen. If you're willing to follow what he says, if you're willing to listen, he wants to talk to you. Go to the word with an open heart, no preconceived ideas, and say, Lord, what do you want to show me this morning? But be ready, because he might open up a part of you that you don't want opened. But you're going to have to trust that he wants to open it because he wants to deal with it. He wants to move on from it. He wants you to get past it. He wants you to drop off whatever it is you've been carrying for so long. You'll hear the Holy Spirit of God speak through the word of God first and foremost. But you'll also hear the Lord speak through that still, small voice. You may hear him speak through other people. But here's what I want you to remember. The Spirit of God will never, ever, ever contradict the word of God. Never will it contradict. If there's a principle in God's word about sin, about money, about family, about employees, employer relationships, about marriage, anything at all, the Spirit of God will never violate those biblical principles or biblical truths that already exist on paper. Sometimes people will come up, hey, the Lord told me. No, he didn't. How do you know? Because his word says something completely different. The Lord told me I, can, I should do that. No, he didn't. That is not from the Lord. Well, how do you know? Because it says thou shalt not. Well, that's, this is the first and foremost. From there, anything else that the Lord, that you believe the Lord is speaking to you, run it through this filter. Where does it fit in here? Does it line up with God's word? If not, discard it. It's not from the Lord. It's nothing but a distraction. If the Holy Spirit speaks in different ways, this means that he's trying to communicate with us. And this means that we must be careful that we do not harden our hearts towards the Lord. Remember, he's talking to believers here, not unbelievers. Look at verse 12, as we're warned. He says, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Remember, they were thinking about leaving. But exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Back up in verse 8, we were warned not to harden our hearts. Here again, we were warned about becoming hardened against an evil heart of unbelief. Please remember, he's talking to believers. It's easy to take this verse and go, no, he's talking about people who don't believe. No, no, he's talking about believers in Jesus Christ who are thinking about going back. He's not, this is not for the atheist. This is for the Christian. And I hope you realize that the hardening of your heart is something that you do. You choose to do that. It's a choice you make. You say, no, no, Rob, that's not what happens. I went through something and my heart got hard. No, no, you're misunderstanding your situation. You allowed a circumstance to harden your heart. If your heart becomes hard, it's because you've allowed it to happen that way. It's a choice that you make. And it's almost always centered around unbelief, around disobedience, or around sin. Those are the three areas that the author is going to tell us here. You see, there's many ways that you can harden your heart. In this passage, we're going to see the author mention these three. Unbelief, disobedience, and sin. You can harden your heart with an evil heart of unbelief. As a Christian, as a follower, well, how is that possible? How could I be a believer in Jesus Christ? No, no, you're, you're not, your heart's not hard because you don't believe. Your heart can be hard because you don't believe what he's doing is best for you. Because you're trying to impose your will on the Lord. I don't believe that God's speaking to me anymore. Oh, really? 
then maybe you're not listening. Well, I don't believe God wants to talk to me anymore. Well, that does, that, that's a violation of his word. I don't believe, I don't believe, how's he saying anything to you? See, remember, this is being written to believers, yet they're warned about this heart of unbelief. These people were questioning their faith. They were wondering, should we go back? That's normal. And the author's bringing them back to the big picture. You're questioning your faith, but you've got Christ who's so much greater than everything else. He's pointing them to the unbelief of those who wandered in the desert for 40 years. They missed what God had for them because of their unbelief. Did they believe in God? You bet they did. What didn't they believe? They didn't believe God could overcome their enemy in the promised land. As a result, they wandered for 40 years in a wilderness where they eventually dropped dead in a pile of sand somewhere. When they could have crossed over to the land of milk and honey and watched the Lord destroy their enemies time after time again, taking possession of a land that God had given them. They believed a lie. Unbelief is rooted in deceitfulness. Unbelief comes from your being deceived. It's not that you stop believing. It's that you start believing a lie. You start believing something in place. You exchange the truth for a lie. Happens all the time in a believer's life. Sometimes our unbelief is manifested this way. Well, I'm not going to spend time in God's word today. Why not? Well, God doesn't really. I've done that for the last three weeks and God really hasn't said anything to me. I really haven't. I don't see anything out of it. I don't get much out of it if I do that. You see, we come up with lots of excuses. But that's, God, if you, he's not talking to me. You see, that's the lie. What's the truth? He wants to talk to me. The reality is I'm probably not listening. I'm probably not going with an open heart. I'm probably going with the heart, the idea that says, all right, God, tell me what you want. I'll evaluate it, and if I like it, I'll do it. Why would he ever talk to you? When you come before the Lord and say, Lord, give me direction in my life, you had better be willing to follow it, or you're not going to hear a thing from him. As a dad, if my kids came to me and said, Dad, what do you think of this situation? If I know they're not going to listen to me, I'm not going to waste my time telling them. But if I know they really want, if I know that they're going to listen, they're going to follow. And if I know that they really believe that my advice is based on wisdom and perfection, which it's not, by the way, his is. My advice is not that way, but the Lord's is. If you really believe that his advice, his plan for your life, his direction that he's going to send you is based on his faithfulness, his perfection, the best for you, why would you want anything else? You wouldn't, you shouldn't. It should be what I want from him. One of the other areas that we can harden our hearts is disobedience. Disobedience. You can harden your heart by not being willing to follow God's word. Sometimes people go to the Lord and they don't want to hear him so they can follow him. As I said, they just want his advice. They want his opinion. And they're going to take his opinion, they're going to weigh it against their will, and they're going to follow whichever one sounds better dangerous situation you know what you're going to get from God on that nothing why would he tell you I would encourage you that if you're seeking the Lord and you're going Lord I'm, I'm trying to get to I'm not getting anything I would encourage you to examine your heart go to him come realize in your heart I will follow whatever you say and then watch if he doesn't give you what he wants next that next step of faith you see but it all works together because he says I want you to do this you go oh, I can't do that I want you to go into the promised land. I want you to take possession. I want to do this thing through. No, I can't do that. All right, then wander in the desert. Go ahead. That's your choice. Go ahead. You can wander in the desert. I, this is what I want for you. You asked. I told you. You sent in spies. Eight came back bad news. Two came back good news. But you chose the eight. Okay. That's, that's what you can do. That should terrify you. The fact that God could have something better for you 
And yet there's, a, there's something in us, there's some unbelief, there's some, uh, there's some sin, or there's some disobedience that's keeping us from that. You see, disobedience is it's sin, but it's not always a blatant fleshly sin. Many times it's just us not doing what God wants us to do. Many times God's calling, in, encouraging, stepping to step out, prodding us in some way, and we just go, no, I'm, not, I'm too comfortable where I am. I don't want to go in a situation where I might have to face financial difficulty. I don't want to go where I might get sick. I don't want to, I don't want to do those things. The other way that we can harden our hearts is sin. You can harden your heart through sin. In verse 13, it says we're told that we can harden our hearts through the deceitfulness of sin. Just like unbelief, sin is rooted in deceitfulness. It lies to you. If you're engaged or practicing sin, in other words, if you're going to sin practice, like you do soccer practice, every week, every day, every whatever it is, I'm, I'm practicing this sin, I'm doing this thing, I'm always doing this thing, you're hardening your heart. That's what the scripture says. Your heart is getting harder and harder and harder and harder. Perhaps it's little by little by little. And the reason that's happening is because you're being deceived. Does anybody like to be deceived? No, of course we don't. But do you realize when you follow sin, your sin is deceiving you? It's making you think, this is going to feel good. This is going to make life better. I'll be happier. This will make things, this will fix everything. Then I would be happy if I eat this, if I look at that. Everything would be better if I had a wife or a husband, or if I didn't have a wife or a husband, or if I had a relationship, or if I had kids. Whatever it would be, then it would be better. No, it would not. Do you know why? Because any one of those things that you think would make things better, you know what the problem is? You and me. You know why? Because we have to take ourselves everywhere we go. You might think, well, if I had a bigger house in a nicer neighborhood, then things would be better. No, it wouldn't because you've got to take yourself with you. And if you're miserable in the small house, you're going to be miserable in the big house. It if you're not content there, you're not going to be content somewhere else. Well, if I had a better job, no, it wouldn't change a thing. It would not change a thing in, in one way or another because you, you are the one that has to change. Become content with what you have and where God has you. In other words, right where you are, become content there, and then you will never find more joy in your life. No matter what the outside circumstance looks like, the joy will come from the inside. You see, the writer tells us the consequence of a hard heart there in verse 12. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief. Here's what it leads to. In departing from the living God and departing from the living God. If you harden your heart long enough, if you harden your heart enough, if, you, if it gets that point, it's going to cause you to depart. You take a look at Pharaoh's life. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened, and eventually, you know what happened? God hardened his heart. And once God hardened his heart, there was no more coming back. God said, I'm going to stamp what you've asked for, what you've done. I'm going to stamp it right on your heart. That's the danger, departing from the living God. But here's... The amazing thing, there's a way to combat a hard heart. As I study this, as I read that, I go, you know, sometimes I think I'm hardening my heart. I, I need to, what do we do? How do we combat that? He tells you right there. Exhort one another daily while it is called today. Exhort one another. If you want to strengthen your faith, if you want to avoid a hard heart caused by unbelief, caused by sin, caused by disobedience, I love this, you must be around Christians who will exhort you. Fellowship. You want to, you want to strengthen your, your walk with Christ? Spend time with Christians who will exhort you. Spend time with Christians who will share with you what God's doing in their life. You can share what he's doing in your life. Yes, there may be failures, but there's going to be successes to share as well. Look what God's doing here. Look what God's doing there. 
It, It will exhort you. Don't be hanging around with cranky Christians. Don't hang around with complaining Christians, compromising Christians. If that's the whole person that they are, they're going to bring you with them. Try to bring them up. If you can't bring them up, get away because they will drag you down. You ever been by, you ever, you ever been, you ever worked with that person? That's always miserable. They're always cranky. They're always complaining. Every time you see them, everything, it's, the world's falling apart. And you spend more than 15 minutes with them and you just feel like you've been beaten up. And, and, and they haven't touched you. They've just all, they've dumped all these problems and these issues and they're worried about this and they're worried about that and all this stuff. And you go, oh, geez, your, your priorities are all wrong. Let me ask you this question. Are the people you're hanging around with, are they exhorting you in your faith? Are you exhorting people that you're hanging around with? Or are they bringing you down? Or are you bringing people down? You see, we need to take an honest look at ourselves and say, what are, where do I fit into that? It's fun to laugh and, you know, cranky Christians and all that kind of stuff, but am I one? If I am, I need to change. Christian fellowship is an important component of Christian growth. It's required. It must be the right kind of fellowship. In fact, I'll say this, unless you're out in the middle of the desert fasting with the Lord, if you are not in regular Christian fellowship, you are probably not growing in Christ. If you begin to withdraw, you are drifting. If you begin to not coming around Christian fellowship, whether it be this church or any other church, you are probably not growing. You're probably drifting backwards. You're probably drifting away from the Lord. You begin to say things, I don't need to be around those, I don't need to be around those church people. They don't like me anyways. They don't understand me. They don't know me. All these lies, and what is, you're being deceived again. You see how the deceitfulness works in? You're believing something that's not true. I don't, they, don't, they don't really want me around. Well, no, that, that you're just, you, you just believed a lie, you've grabbed onto it, and now you've, take, you've allowed that belief to turn into disobedience. Because the Lord says we need Christian fellowship. Now you're not doing that either. I know you guys are all here. I'm not talking to you. But tell your friends that aren't here. And you begin to get pulled away. But see, the temptation can be any one of us. Because any point in our Christian walk, we've probably all drifted a little bit. We have to recenter ourselves. We've probably all withdrawn a little bit. We have to recenter ourselves. That's why the word of God reminds us, hey, don't drift. You need the Christian fellowship. Be around people who are going to exhort you. Look with me at verse 14. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. While it is said, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your heart as in the rebellion. If you're hearing his voice, if he's knocking on your heart, don't harden your heart. Believers, that's those of us who have turned from sin, from ourself, put our trust in Christ. We are gloriously called partakers of Christ. Realize that. Do you know what it means to be a partaker of Christ? That means you get to partake of something he has. It's, he, he's done it, he's accomplished it, and now you get to partake of it. Let me just give you an idea. We are partakers of his obedience. We are partakers of his suffering, partakers of his death, partakers of his resurrection, partakers of his victory, partakers of his plan, partakers of his power, partakers of his ministry of intercession before the Father. He's, he's ministering to the God on your behalf. We're partakers of his work, his glory, his destiny. We're partakers of everything in Christ Jesus. That should, you should go, wow, that's amazing. It is. 
But I want to point something out again. The author there is warning the readers, has been warning us not to harden our hearts. And once again, this is important. The tendency, our tendency is to believe our hearts become hard by what somebody else does to us. My hearts become hard because of the way that I was treated. My hearts become hard because of a circumstance, because of an illness, because of something going on in my life. There's a, there's a tendency to do that. It's not our fault. It's, we always want to blame someone or something else. The truth is, you and I are the ones responsible for our hearts. If it's hard, it's because you're allowing it to get hard. And while we can blame it on something or someone else, it's us who's allowing it to happen. It's our unbelief. Lord, you don't know what you're doing. If you loved me, you wouldn't allow this to happen. He says, I love you so much, I'm allowing this to happen. But you don't believe that he really does. Lord, but I'm the victim of, I'm, I'm the victim of, a, of, of whatever happened. Somebody did something and it caused great pain in my life. He goes, I know, but I'm going to be there with you. And when we get through all this on the other side, you're going to see more clearly why we've endured it together. But your unbelief goes, no, no, God would never do that. You see how that unbelief, you're deceived into that. If your heart is hard this morning, just know that you made it that way. It's your fault, not his. Don't blame anybody else. But here's the beauty. You can begin to soften it anytime you want. Think about this for a moment. He's told us that our heart is heart because of our unbelief, because of our disobedience, and because of sin in our life. If I want to reverse that process, I turn my unbelief into belief. I turn my disobedience into obedience, and I turn my sin into repentance. You see, it goes back the other direction just as quickly as it went one way. What an amazing concept that we have. You go, well, Rob, I have a hard heart. It's simple. Start believing, repent of your sins, and start obeying what God's word says. And you will find that your hard heart will turn into a soft, pliable heart that he will begin to use. It's not that simple. Yes, it is. I'm going to tell you it's not that hard. Because people will always say to me, well, you don't know what I've been through. You know what? You're right. I don't know what you've been through, but I know what God's word says. And I've watched God's word prove faithful in my own life and in countless people that I've come alongside with in their lives as well. And it will prove faithful in your life too. But your unbelief is keeping it from doing so. Wow. Look at these last few verses as the author draws our attention back to those people who came out of Egypt. They crossed over the Red Sea. They stood on the border of the promised land and they refused to enter in. Look at verse 16. For who, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Now with whom was he angry 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? But to those who did not obey. So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Rebellion Unbelief and disobedience caused the first generation of Israelites to drop dead in the desert and not enter into the rest that God had for them. Instead, they wandered for 40 years. Rebellion, unbelief, and a failure to obey. So let me, earlier I gave you three questions. What does it say? to look at when you read the Bible. What does it say? What does it mean? What does it mean to me? Here's how that question plays out. What is rebellion, unbelief, 
and disobedience costing you. In the example given in scriptures, it cost them their entrance into the promised land. If it's in my life as a believer, again, this is not a salvation message. He's writing to believers here. If there is rebellion, if there is unbelief, if there is disobedience, you can better believe that it's costing you something. Here's the problem. We don't ever see what it's costing us many times. Why? Because that's where faith comes in. That's where I have to believe that he has something for me. What is it costing you? Many times we don't have the answer to that question because we can't fathom the things the Lord has for you. I don't even think they understood. They knew they were going somewhere, but they didn't realize what the promised land was. Do you know if they had actually taken the promised land, all of it that was given to them, and they'd maintained it, and they'd done exactly what God says, Israel would be ruling the world right now? They would control the world's oil supply. They would, they would be, I think the world would be a totally different place. It would be amazing what they would have, what would be going on there. They didn't believe. They became complacent. They failed to obey. In fact, it says they rebelled. At the very least, at the very least, get, it, get this. Rebellion, unbelief, and disobedience is keeping you from God's rest. God's rest. Anybody need a little rest today? Yeah, I wish my life would be a little more restful sometimes. Every time I find myself in, in upheavals and I'm twisted, I'm turned, I'm, I can't, I can't, I'm stressed out. It almost always comes back to those things. I'm doing something. I'm, un, I'm not believing God's going to do something. I'm, I'm carrying the load of a burden that I should, that I should let him carry. Is he really going to handle this problem? I don't think he can. I better step right in here. Can he really handle this issue in my life? I don't think he can. It comes back to unbelief. If we would simply believe and obey and repent of our sins, we could then enter into his rest. Now, next week, we're going to talk more about rest. Chapter 4 is going to give us a lot more insight in that rest. Jesus is greater than the prophets. He's greater than the angels. He's greater than Moses. Greater than anything you could ever choose over him. As a matter of fact, if you ever find anything greater worth following other than Jesus Christ, please come tell me. I want to go with you. I will. I'll go with you. Chances are I've already been there and done that. Or I know someone who has. I don't think you will. In Christ, we're called sons. We're in the process of being brought to glory. We are being sanctified. Why would we ever exchange that for the lie that sin wants to tell us? We wouldn't. We wouldn't. We shouldn't. Last week, we were warned about drifting. This week, we're warned about unbelief and the hardening of our hearts. Hopefully, these warnings cause you to look at your own heart. Because here's what happens. When you hear something like this, the first tendency is, I wish so-and-so was here to hear this. I wish my wife or my husband, I wish somebody else could, no, no, forget them. This is about you. You're hearing it this morning. Is there an area in your life, I'm not saying you're not saved. Is there an area of disobedience where God's called you to do something and you're not? Is there an area of unbelief where you have to put your faith and trust in the Lord and you're not? It's keeping you from his rest. Is there an area of sin that's ongoing, that's not being dealt with? If there is, deal with it. That's the beauty. There's plenty of time. He says, just turn from it. I'll forgive you. We can move on through this together. What an amazing God we have. Because so often if we were God, zap them. They didn't listen again. Take them in the bedroom and give them the spanking, you know. But God says, no, I love them too much. I'm just going to walk with them. I'm going to carry them. I'm going to be here for them. Next week in chapter 4, we'll talk more about this rest that we're promised. Let's pray. 
Father, your word is so faithful to penetrate our hearts, to speak to us, to minister to us. Lord, if there's anybody here that is in sin, that is disobedient to what you've told them to, or if unbelief is prevailing in their hearts, you've called them out on it. Now may they respond. May they turn their unbelief into belief. May they turn their sin into repentance. And may disobedience become obedience. May we walk with you, Lord. Be encouraged by you. Be lifted up by you. Lord, we know, and you know as well, this life is hard. But we can't imagine going through it without you. Forgive our unbelief. Forgive our disobedience. Forgive our lack of faith. But build these things in us, Lord. Shape us, mold us, make our hearts soft as we comply with your word. In Jesus' name, amen.